Q&A with Bishop Julian Porteous. to the program where your questions get answered by our very own Bishop Julian. Hello Bishop. Hello Javina. You're here today with Jeremy Ambrose and Javina Graham and we're going to fire some more questions at you today. Are you ready? Terrific, I'm ready. Excellent. Bishop, in, in, in <coughs> most university studies where there's any kind of science or biology involved, it's pretty much taken as a given that the theory of, of, evolu of evolution promoted by Darwin is, is, is fact mm. um, rather than a theory. It's, it's a given. Um, is it okay? Is it, is, it, is, it just, is it okay for Catholics to wholeheartedly embrace Darwin's theories as fact, or should we have some reservations about this? Whatever about Darwin's theories in themselves, <clears throat> I think what has actually happened is that there is now Darwinism. There is there is a whole um, mode of thinking. There is a whole set of understandings about uh, about life, about uh, about society which uh, which is really influenced by this notion of evolution now what goes along with the notion of evolution in, in the mind of many people is to say that really Darwin has been able to to debunk uh, Christian teaching about creation and and about particularly about the story of creation in the book of Genesis <clears throat> and so for many people um, Darwinism is taken as a almost like a philosophy of life or a philosophy of of, uh, of society and and of the development of humanity, um, where God doesn't have to figure. So God is really taken out of the equation completely, uh, and this is where you, you I think you can run into very serious problems. So people can then begin to to really see that if you like. Everything can be explained in terms of evolutionary forces. We are simply evolving, and what we're evolving to all the time is better than before. And um, and basically, the people say, well, "Well, God now is irrelevant to this process." Now, I think that's where some dangers lie. Well, I mean, Bishop, what would some of those dangers be? I mean, if if we took that for granted and said, "Well, okay, God has no place here." Um, and, and we followed this mode of thought and things like survival of the fittest and all of that, where would that lead us? Mm. Well, a good example would be to consider survival of the fittest as one of the, the, the tags that's associated very readily with, uh, with Darwinism. And, <clears throat> and while we can see that, that, um, that there is evidence for this actually taking place, if it's carried over into, say, human... Uh, in human society, I think there can be very real dangers, particularly if you were to have a, um, a government or to have a particular uh, philosophy uh, in a society that is completely and totally um, anti-Christian or rejecting Christian. A good example of this would be Nazism. You know, Nazism was <clears throat> was was a an ideology, a, a system that uh, was promoted 
um, say, the Aryan race and would consider other races as, as inferior and, and saw some, some particular races as really needing to be eliminated because that they, they would consider them to be not uh, beneficial for the, for the good of their, their particular view of society. And of course, one of the terrible things that Nazism did, apart from the Holocaust and, and, the, and the, the, the murder of, of, of millions of Jews, was that they, they also considered any child or, or any person who had a disability to be imperfect. So they, they weren't the fittest. They were, so they didn't have a right to live because only the fittest should be able to live. Only the superior uh, beings should be able to... Uh, to survive and, 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 if you like, ge generate future generations. Um, and, and so that's where you get this very terrible aspect to, say, a principle like uh, survival of the fittest, where God is, is taken out of the equation, where it becomes just a pure ideology. And this could be the danger today where many people have you know, readily embraced this notion of evolution, this notion of that comes out of from Darwin's uh, theory, but do so eliminating the question of God from it, and so there can be grave dangers to society if if these if these approaches to life uh, do continue. Mm. And I think these things have been moving quite rapidly over the, even the past century, Bishop Julian. We we hear of something called social Darwinism, and I think we, I see that particularly when we talk about um, prenatal diagnosis of unborn children. Can you tell us a bit more about what this social Darwinism really means? Yes, there were a number of um, people who, who took the notion of, uh, of evolution and, and, and saw that, uh, that they can be actually involved in largely social engineering to ensure that uh, that that the society becomes stronger and, and purer in various ways, like one instance of this, I think that was very very interesting was was back in the beginning of the uh, the twentieth century, the nineteen twenties, and so on, <clears throat> when when people uh, felt that uh, the the poor the poor were a lesser level of life, if you like, in the society. And, uh, but the problem was the poor were breeding too much. The, the poor had too many children, whereas the rich would have fewer children. And they, they felt that this wasn't healthy, um, that for the good of society, you want the, the educated, the wealthy, those who are, are, are able to, uh, to be leaders in society, want them to generate the children. Um, and you want the, the poor to have less children. And so there were serious efforts to bring in um, forms of contraception and, and, and almost to require, and sometimes they would be proposing legislation to say that if you have too many children, you'll be in some way uh, penalised for doing that. So there was a, a deliberate effort to say, we need to restrict the poor because the poor are not as educated, not as capable. They're they're um, they're almost you know a lower level of life. You know, so you can have this this uh, this social engineering taking place. And now you find this also, of course, in 
prenatal diagnosis, don't you, at the present moment? Yes, well, we know that as a, as a standard now, most women who attend an obstetrics clinic are strongly advised to have prenatal testing for all sorts of conditions, the most common one being Down syndrome. And now, of course, there are other reasons why a woman would want to know um, if her child has some sort of chromosomal abnormality other than just aborting them. But we do know that when Down syndrome is diagnosed, pretty much in 80 to 85 percent of cases of diagnosis, that child is then aborted. Mm -hmm. And so I think there is this trend now of, of killing off those who we deem to be inferior or of less value in society, even before they make it into the world. Mm. And one of the difficulties I think happens if, if you do the prenatal testing and, 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 and sometimes I think it's true that the doctor will say, look, there's an 80% chance. Yes. There's not a 100% chance, there's an 80% chance that your child may suffer this particular disease or something like that. Yeah. And therefore the doctor said, no, the best thing to do would be abort the child rather than risk the child having a particular disease or deformity or some problem. So <clears throat> this creates enormous issues and, 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 and the, the mother of the child can be put under, under quite considerable pressure, particularly if the expectation is to say you wouldn't consider risking a ch your child being born with some particular um, deformity or whatever it may be, some particular disease. You know, that, that would be irresponsible. And so in a very subtle way, the, the prenatal testing puts great pressure on um, mothers, particularly obviously couples, to, to have an abortion rather than risk the birth of a, a child who may suffer um, some particular problem. Mm. And this again, I think, is an expression of, of the eugenics that come out of, of this sort of approach of, uh, mm. of, um, of, of really social Darwinism. Most definitely. So does that mean that we, sh as Catholics, should reject all of Darwin's thoughts? Not necessarily. I don't think we need to... to uh, and the Church really keeps an open mind on a lot of evolutionary theory. <clears throat> but I think we have to make a distinction between the possibility of some evolutionary processes uh, being at work and also the presence and work of, of God the Creator. Uh, I think Darwinism becomes dangerous when God is taken out of the equation. I think as Catholics we want to preserve um, our awareness that all of creation is the work of God. Um, how it actually takes place, God can work in all sorts of different ways and there may be evolutionary factors that are the means by which God acts. So we, we don't reject everything necessarily about Darwin, Darwin's theories and particularly about evolution. Um, but at the same time, we must be very careful about the fact of not allowing Darwinism and evolutionary theory to be taken solely and completely as the explanation for the way in which uh, the world has developed. Mm. Much food for thought, Bishop. There's, I think there's, these issues are going to keep coming up and it's important that we form ourselves to know how to respond to these. So thank you very much for your insights. All right, thank you. Jeremy, we come to that part of our uh, discussion where I get to ask the questions and, and just to deal with little 
aspects, different aspects of Catholic life and tradition. One of the things I'd like to talk about just very simply tonight is um, the use, the, the, a particular word that it's, I think is quite distinctly uh, associated with the, the Mass, and that is the word pattern, P-A-T-E-N. Do you know immediately what a pattern is? Well, before you spelled it, I was thinking of, you know, like a nice zebra pattern or polka dot <laughs> pattern or that sort of thing, but please explain, Bishop, what this is. Yeah, so the, the pattern, of course, is the, uh, the small plate upon which the, uh, the host mm -hmm. Is, uh, is is kept during during mass, uh, as as you know, you'll often see the uh, um, on the altar when we come to the offertory that the that the um, the chalice is brought over, and on top of the chalice is a small, normally often gold, small gold plate, uh, and on that is normally one host, the, the the main host used by the priest, and then there are other receptacles brought over which contain other hosts. Sometimes you get a larger uh, pattern where, where there are a number of hosts on it with the, the main host that the priest uses. Um, the pattern is, is really simply a plate, but it's quite uh, distinct in the sense of, that it is um, the plate that is used to hold uh, the host of the body of Christ after consecration. So traditionally, um, the pattern was just something, uh, a simple plate, usually made of gold. Um, as I said, it would just have the, um, the host, one host on it. It's normally designed in such a way that it actually fits on top of the chalice. It's just the custom we have of the chalice being brought over. Normally on top of the chalice is the corporal, the cloth that is used to wipe the, uh, sorry, the, the purifier, which is used to wipe the, the chalice. And then on top of that is, is the pattern. And often the pattern is designed in such a way that it has a little um, part that goes down so that it fits neatly and stays mm -hmm. on top of the chalice. It's just the tradition of carrying the, the pattern on top of the chalice over. Of course, they, they can be, and often these days they're made, uh, they're made of a larger size. But uh, again, when we, when we think about the use of the pattern, it's only ever used for that purpose. It's used to hold the, the host, which becomes the body of Christ. And as I said, it's often made of gold, again, a sign of respect for the fact that it's used for that. Normally a pattern, as, as with a chalice, is, is, is consecrated, uh, and, and it's only ever used for mass. So we don't just use any plate or, or any, um, any particular object for things in mass, because we have this sense of uh, their significance and their role in the in the liturgy, and so we always treat them with great respect. And so, in in the past, it was often only the the priest who would uh, would carry the pattern and and, and the, the chalice. These days, we're a little bit freer on that, but it's always something that is treated with great respect and reverence because the pattern holds the body of Christ at mass. Well, I'll keep my eye out for it in the next offertory procession, Bishop Julian. Thank you. And thanks very much for another great session of Q&A with Bishop Julian. You've been listening to Q&A with Bishop Julian Porteous. For more episodes, visit radio.org.au.